You don't need a major life event to have experienced financial trauma. In this week's episode, I chat with Rakim Sabri, who specializes in financial trauma and talks about his story of getting out of poverty, microaggressions at work, pursuing entrepreneurship, and mental health. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Welcome to the Mental Health and Wealth Show podcast. This is your host, Melanie Lockhart. My journey with money and mental health started in 2012 when I was depressed and anxious about my student loan debt. In 2013, I started my blog, Dear Debt, which chronicled my debt payoff journey and changed my life. I later published my book of the same name about how I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. It was my time blogging that showed me that I wasn't alone in my mental health struggles around money and that my own mental health impacted how I related to money. My mission now is to help others feel less alone and tackle these difficult topics. As a disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional or a financial professional, and all content on the show should not be considered professional medical or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. If you are in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much for being here, and if you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform, and feel free to share episodes on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart. I would love to hear from you. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Rakim Sabri, author of the book, Financially Irresponsible. He is also a speaker, certified financial education instructor, and financial coach who focuses on financial trauma. His work has been published in Entrepreneur, Business Insider, The Griot, Thrive Global, Black Enterprise, Go Banking Rates, CreditCards.com, and so much more. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Melanie. I'm so happy to be here. I am super excited to chat with you because I think you have such an amazing story and interesting experiences, and I just want to dive right in. So you and I connected over Twitter originally because you were talking about financial trauma and money and mental health and working in financial services and just, you know, seeing your work. I was like, I have to talk to you on the Mental Health and Wealth Show because we're all about diving into these deep taboo topics, money and mental health. They're so interconnected and yet people don't really see the connection, at least the way it plays in their lives, or they do and they're not, you know, able or willing to talk about it because these things are so difficult and they're pushed to the shadows. So you focus on financial trauma in your work and I know trauma can have different meanings for different people. Everyone has had different experiences. Maybe they've had big T trauma or little T trauma, but we've all dealt with this in some kind of way. So how do you define financial trauma and how do you think it affects people? Yeah, great question. So I think financial trauma is any experience that negatively impacts your relationship with money. So that can include what you believe about money, how you use money, whether or not you deserve money. And I think that that impacts people in a variety of ways because um, how they choose to spend or budget or not budget or save or not save or invest or not invest can be influenced by something as simple as the people that they're closest to, right? Their friends, their family, social media, who they heard on TV, a book that they read. 
what are some examples of like how people can get financial trauma? I'm thinking like job loss, bankruptcy, debt, growing up in poverty. Um, what are some other examples that you've seen in your work? Yeah, I think all of those are probably the first examples that will come to mind. But something as simple as I had an experience when I was getting ready to go off to college and one of my neighbors saw me, you know, on my way and they're like, listen, whatever you do, when you get out there, do not take out any credit cards. And for a long time, I was just like, you know, why? (laughs) Right. Like it was just kind of like this resonating thought in my mind. But it's like, don't do credit cards. Credit cards will ruin your life. And you hear that. I mean, I've heard that a million times over when I was working in banking. People just have like this almost fear, like you said, guilt or shame or anxiety when it comes to the credit card as a product, a standalone product. But on the other side of that, I think some trauma can be inflicted on people by individuals in the financial services space, right? Where there's product pushing whether that's Mm -hmm. from the perspective of a banker or a life insurance salesperson or even a stockbroker. I had a licensed stockbroker, my first experience with one, sit down with me and basically show me a self-directed option, which was kind of not underscored at all, just kind of seemed like the un- unwanted, unworthy option, and then a guided investment option that, of course, costs money. And when we were sitting down, kind of going through the motions, I could tell that once I indicated that I was not interested in paying, that I was no longer a priority customer, or I was no longer viewed through the lens of having been worth time. And so I noticed my appointments were being canceled or or rescheduled, that the information that I was given was a lot more general and broad, um, that being pointed to certain mutual fund families was just kind of the default answer. And so in that moment, I decided, well, I'm going to go self-directed and I don't need a, a financial advisor. And so just kind of thinking about the trauma that that interaction inflicted on me Um, that had a positive benefit, certainly, right? Because I had to take ownership of what my investing strategy looked like. But imagine if I didn't. Imagine if I just said, you know what? I had a bad experience with an advisor. I'm not going to invest at all. Yeah, that's so eye-opening and and reminds me of my conversation with Leia Landaverde on this show, which we can link back to that in the show notes, where she was talking about this inherent distrust that a lot of communities of color have with financial services institutions. And it sounds like this is a big reason why, because it's like you're seen as a number, as kind of you're only worth something if you have a certain amount of assets. And as soon as you don't want to play their game, then you're no longer important to them. You're no longer worth their time. And that can be traumatizing because then you're like, am I not worth it to you? Am I not good enough for you? Did I almost get scammed? Can I do this by myself? Like all of the questions can taunt you. And I think what you're saying and about your experience really highlights how so many people are pushed out of the financial services kind of ball game altogether. And they have that kind of, you know, quote, bad taste in their mouth because it's like, well, this didn't go as I planned. This feels like you don't have my best interest at heart. And now I have to figure this out by myself. And I'm so glad that you did decide to invest. And yeah, thinking about 
what if you were traumatized and feel like, wow, like I don't trust these people. I'm never going to go anywhere near these banks or these investors or these financial advisors. And you just decided to keep your money under the mattress. And, you know, that would have been more traumatizing later on having the consequences of those actions. So I'm so glad we're highlighting these kind of more insidious financial traumas that happen every day. Like, like I said earlier, the, the big T trauma, you know, in people's lives are very obvious because they're very big, important, large events. But the little T traumas sometimes happen so imperceptibly that we're just like, oh, that was just a bad experience. And then not until much later do we realize, oh, wow, that had a profound impact on my life. And I just want to share with the audience, you know, as we have in my disclaimer in the show, I'm not a therapist or a financial professional. This is purely based on my experience as well as the experience of my guests. But from what I know about trauma, you know, when we have this reaction that is larger than life, when we have those kind of emotional landmines, those triggers where you know deep in your body that you're reacting more than is appropriate for the situation, that is usually because of some kind of previous trauma. And I think we've all been there where we're overreacting about something and we're just like, why am I reacting this way when I know that in reality, this one particular thing isn't that big of a deal, but I'm having this all-consuming triggered reaction. Usually that is at the heart of, of trauma's work because the book, you know, the body keeps the score. <laughs> it clearly illustrates that trauma stays in your body. And that book was so illuminating to me because it really showed me as, you know, a therapy advocate that sometimes therapy doesn't even help severe cases of trauma because it literally is stored in the body. So we have to have different healing modalities to really reset our nervous system. Absolutely. There's an experiment that um, I don't remember the name of it, but uh, I studied psychology when I was in school. And um, it talks about monkeys being shocked if they, like, I think climb a pole or something like that. And basically what happens is the monkeys are cycled out. And by the end of the experiment, none of the monkeys that are in the enclosure um, were shocked but they all know not to climb on the pole because of the experience of monkeys that did climb the pole and get shocked. And when I think about that as an experiment and as a reality for people when it comes to specifically their financial traumas, but any trauma that, that they may experience, I think it's also important to know that you may not have to have experienced the trauma directly in order to inherit that trauma. And so when I talk about financial trauma, particularly with Black people, right, there is like this reaction that says, well, I didn't experience poverty. I didn't experience trauma directly. I grew up in, you know, a wealthy family or I grew up in a middle class family. I, I had everything that I ever wanted. What a lot of people are not taking into consideration is that even the experience that they have without experiencing trauma directly can be shaped by the trauma of the people or instances that have shaped what is their current or lived reality. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think we can't ignore what 
what's happening in our own communities and you know what we've seen in communities of color where there's constant racism and oppression i mean even if that's not necessarily your lived experience day to day how can you ignore what's going on with that and we can't say that that can't affect you on in some kind of, of level you know 100 percent So you mentioned to me in our pre-podcast kind of chatting that you had experienced poverty and obviously that can affect your relationship with money. So I'm curious, how do you shift your money mindset if your experience has always been with lack? Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, I think for me, it started with understanding that my experience wasn't unique and that it wasn't final, right? So Mm. um and I speak to this idea of exposure to something different, right? Understanding that there's more and that I was capable of more. I was capable of accomplishing more made a huge difference. If, if everybody that you see every day has the same experience and the same level of accomplishment that you do, well, then your aspiration of the ceiling for you is very, very low. But when your exposure to opportunity, to ambition, so actual accomplishment is much greater than your ceiling becomes a little bit higher. And so I think the most relevant example that I can give is um, I grew up in an apartment my whole life um, up until the time I was about 20, 21. And so I didn't think of home ownership really as a goal, first of all, but as even being possible for me at a young age, certainly before 30. And then my environment changed. I left the state and and a city that I grew up in, moved to another city and state. And I started interacting with people that were close to my age who owned property. And I was like, whoa, like you're not even 30 yet. How do you own property? And so that it raised the ceiling for me and allowed for me to start developing ambitions and more than that, creating a plan. So I think the second part to that is education and understanding, okay, how do I make this thing happen? What are the tools and the steps and processes that I need to have at my disposal in order to accomplish this now new ceiling? And then the last part would be the execution, right? So it was overcoming trauma, you know, identifying first, but overcoming trauma that says, okay, I know it's possible for me to own a home, I know what steps I need to take to own a home. And then it goes into the series of what ifs, right? What if I can't afford to pay my mortgage? What if I don't make enough money? What if the furnace goes out or I need to buy a new this or I need to buy a new that? How am I going to get the money to pay for these things? Because the peer that I was modeling my accomplishment after had a network of people in their corner that they could go to and say, hey, I need $5,000, I need $10,000, I need $20,000 to cover this. And my reality at that particular point in time was that I couldn't. And so it was all on me to come up with the difference. And so Mm -hmm. God forbid I needed to get a new roof or I needed to um, replace the furnace or, you know, anything like that. Who was I going to go to? And that could have been the point in which I decided, you know what, I have all this information, I have this exposure, but I'm not going to do anything with it because I'm afraid. And so the execution piece is probably one of the most important pieces because we can go and hoard all of this knowledge, but Mm -hmm. 
But if we don't do anything with it, then it's useless. Yeah. I think the two most important parts that you brought up were getting into new environments and also shifting to a mindset of possibility. Because I think when your experience has always just been around lack, that there's not enough money, there's not enough food, there's not enough time, whatever that situation is, of course, you're going to continue to feel like there's not enough to only see that, especially if everyone around you is in the same place. So getting into a new environment and seeing, oh, not everybody is like this. Not everybody's in this situation. And we talk a lot about kind of healing from a scarcity mindset towards an abundance mindset. And obviously that leap can be so huge for people. And so I really love what you said about possibility because I think that can be a nice middle ground for people because obviously you don't go from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset overnight. But what if you just take a little step towards possibility first and say, okay, I'm not quite at the abundance mindset, but what if there are different possibilities? Do other people live differently than me? How did they do it? How can I do it? Is there something I can change to make this happen? And I think that's a a really strong point. And so that brings me to my next question. So first of all, I want to acknowledge, obviously, systemic oppression contributes to poverty and getting out of poverty is not a one size fits all or easy solution. And I personally believe that it should not just be all on the individual. It's a governmental, systemic, international, global issue at this point. But I'm curious, you know, for your personal story, what steps did you take to have a different future? Yeah, I think um, the industry, the financial services industry in and of itself is just kind of built off of, you know, the racist and classist principles. And those things impact culture, right? So I experienced, I, I spent 10 years in the banking industry and um, the culture, corporate culture is really what impacted me the most in terms of how I carried myself, how I spoke, what I wore, what I didn't wear, whether or not I showed my tattoos, whether or not I let um, certain words or um, even tones slip in conversations. There was this huge pressure for me to code switch my way into you know these ideals of professionalism, whatever that means, right? And um, certainly that impacts how I interface with customers when I was customer facing. I felt like um, in instances where I was maybe in management or in a sales role, and I'm interacting with somebody who is considerably wealthy, that I had to approach them in a certain way. Or on the flip side, if somebody came in who was very obviously impacted by poverty, I had to interact with them in a very different way. And it's almost something that I, I carry a little bit of shame and guilt around because it's so easy to lose yourself in that, to lose your identity in that, um, keeping up with the culture, keeping up with the corporate culture of, of that space. And on the other side of, you know, what it is that I'm struggling with internally, there was what it is that I was faced with directly. So I worked in a variety of mass affluent um, environments. And basically that just meant that most of our customer base was had money. And um, 
as a manager, certainly, I remember having customers walk in and look through me as if I didn't exist or undermining me as a manager to ask for um, a peer that was not on a management or supervisory level because they just didn't believe that I was the manager or that I could be the manager. You know, there was a lot of that in terms of the microaggression. So a big part of what success looked like, and, and I use air quotes when I say success, was just kind of like eating that. You know, oh, it, it just comes with it comes with the territory. I just got to make it through the day. Just let it roll off your shoulders. Don't take it personally. And that was the expectation of, you know, my superiors for me in that role. Because if I reacted the way that I wanted to react a lot of those times, I would probably be out of a job. But then moving deeper into corporate when I was no longer customer facing, it was interfacing with other management peers or superiors around just kind of the deepening of that identity. And more than that, cultivating individuals who look like me into an image of me that kind of rob them of their identity. So it, it's, it's definitely complex and, and, and certainly layered. Um, I think the answer to your question around <laughs> escaping or, or, or changing my reality is leaving. You know, mm-hmm. I left my job last May as you know part of the great resignation, um, but certainly not with the intentions of just going with the flow of, of that trend, but because I had had enough, and you know, I I felt like I was on the brink of identity crisis. I didn't like who I felt like I was becoming. I didn't like how I felt going into work and interacting with my peers and and not being comfortable being myself or saying what it is that I wanted to say or, um, you know, anything like that. So I had to, uh, I had to, to just destroy it all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting because it sounds like one of the ways that you were able to kind of, change your situation was to move, change your environment, see new possibilities, and also work in finance with people who have money and finance typically because you're working with people that have money. You know, Hopefully you can have some money yourself while working in that industry. But it was something that changed your life materially, but had an impact on your mental health to the point where you quit. And so I think a lot of people get to this point where it's like, I need to get to this job because it's going to help me get out of poverty, get out of debt, get out of this one class. And, you know, I think all of us, whether it's conscious or not, are trying to get out of whatever class structure we were born into, especially if it was poverty, lower middle class, you know, whatever, like, I'll admit I totally went to NYU and took out a bunch of debt because I was like, oh, this is going to get me into solid middle class. Hint, it did not. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, I think there's all of this kind of gymnastics that we go through to try to change our situation, to get into a new class structure. And sometimes we can achieve that through a job or a means of income. But then the cost is so great 
And so it sounds like this job changed your life financially. You learned so much, but with the code switching, the racism, the classism, you had to quit. I'd love to hear more about like your experience and kind of what led to that shift in you where you were like, okay, my money situation is different now. I'm different now. I actually want to do something different and I can't be here anymore because the cost is too high. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I don't know that I was ever asked that way. So I appreciate it. Um, I think it was a culmination of a couple of things. Certainly turning 30 was one of them. I don't know what it is about, you know, leaving your 20s. But I remember like the day that I turned 30, I felt like everything just fit like a glove. You know, I just, I was me and all of me. And the day that I left my job, I was probably two weeks into 31. So I had been 30 for a whole year and it was just kind of like every day of that year. And, and certainly I turned 30 um, in you know, the height of the pandemic in 2020. So there was a lot going on internally. There was a lot going on externally. We weren't in the office anymore. I was home. You know, all of those things just kind of created a recipe for um, I'll use the word disaster for them, but, you know, epiphany for me. Outside of that, I had began to accomplish things on my own, um, which is significant because the entire time that I worked in that space, I was chasing the promotion. You know, like you said, this idea of wanting to solidify your spot in middle class or even upper class, right? Like, I, I want to be rich. <laughs> that was my goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't go into banking thinking that I was going to become rich by being a banker. I actually fell into banking by accident. And so taking the lessons that I learned over the course of that 10-year time span about banking, about money, about investing and starting businesses and personal branding and interacting with other people and networking, all of those things started to benefit me on the back end where, um, you know, I wrote a book and I wrote another one. Then I did a TED talk and I started writing for publications and being featured. And I was just like, okay, like there's some solid momentum and growth, but more than that, there's thought leadership and I can share my experiences in a way that people want to hear them. And so I was kind of feeling myself, right? Like I was just like, all right, like I've arrived or I'm arriving. I don't need someone to validate who I am or how good I am by giving me a raise or a bonus or a promotion. And so once the alert of, you know, that dangling carrot was kind of removed, it was hard for me to be controlled, if that makes any sense. And um, it really became more about me taking ownership of what growth looked like and what success looks like. There's this theme of empowerment in everything that I do, particularly the coaching. But anything that I write, anything that I speak on, it's this idea of supreme confidence and developing that supreme confidence that was something that was instilled in me from a very young age, but didn't really activate until very recently, that I feel like intimidated my superiors in in the workplace and certainly um, put me in a situation where I felt like I had to make a choice between what is the thing that gives me passion and brings me joy and what is, you know, this idea 
if you will, of security that comes with, you know, my salary. And uh, there were a series of microaggressions. There were a series of power plays. There were a series of barring what progression looked like to let me know that, hey, you're not in charge of this show. I am. Mm. And so my response to that was, okay, well, I'm going to turn the channel. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Paying off debt can have a huge impact on your money and your mental health. If you're trying to pay off debt right now, you can check out my book, Dear Debt, and figure out how I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. You can purchase it on Amazon or request it at your local library. You can also pay what you want for my How to Pay Off Debt workshop slides at deardebt.com forward slash shop. That's amazing. I, I'm so interested that you made this big life change at 30 because I actually quit my full-time nonprofit job a long time ago, um, right as I was about turning 30 as well. And it's so fascinating that you mentioned kind of this feeling and shift when you turn 30, because I remember having this feeling a little bit different than yours, but I had this feeling when I turned 30 that, oh my gosh, I can't hide behind the, I'm young and dumb anymore. Like in my 20s, I could just be like, oh, I'm young and dumb. I'm young and dumb. And that was something that I know it sounds silly, but any of my mistakes, oh, dating this person, getting drunk, you know, being in debt, blah, blah, blah. Just, you know, write it off as being young and dumb. And then I had this epiphany when I was 30. I was like, I can't really rely on that anymore. Like any quote mistakes I make, anything that I do in my life, I have to be fully responsible for. And I think, you know, as we get older, we start to realize we can live life on other people's terms and do things for other people, or we can start to live it our way. And as you mentioned, like you had security, financial security with this job, but the cost was racism, classism, microaggressions. That cost on your mental health is too high. And then if you were to think about it financially, like are you actually really winning in that situation when you think of your salary compared to the actual cost that obviously is intangible in this example? But I think a lot of people don't even realize like how much they're being affected by a toxic work culture, how many workplaces have kind of inherited this racist, classist culture. Like uh, I've never worked in in corporate culture because I've always worked in nonprofits prior to self-employment. So I'm not super familiar, even though I'm still familiar with office politics and internal, you know, gossip and all that good stuff. I think that's everywhere in, in office culture. But I think that they are kind of just mirrors of the culture at large and, mm. you know, affecting employees. And when you think of employees working at a place for eight hours a day, they're spending so much of their time there. Like, how is your workplace affecting you? Like, these are the questions we need to be having. And it sounds like, you know, you made the right decision because the cost was too high. Yeah. There's two things that just kind of stand out to me about what you just said. And the first is that I started working in banking when I was 21 years old. So 10 years all of my 20s, practically, I grew up in that space. And so you think about the impact of that culture on identity and some very informative 
years of your life, right? Like while you're trying to figure out who you are and who you want to be. And I think that that's going to have a very lasting impact. Um, I am about eight months, nine months out from having left. And still so much of me is wrapped up in this idea of professionalism and um, being non-threatening, right? And, and you know, censoring myself and being the, the, the diplomatic person that comes in soft-spoken translates the you know the themes between two different opposing parties and um i've had like this radical shift start to kind of unfold and saying like no i want to be me and what does what does that look like the second thing that i wanted to say was and i didn't mention this you know in the the question that you asked but i think it's important is you know what is the biggest difference between a child and their ambitions and an adult and their ambitions Right. You look at a child and we all get asked that, you know, maybe five, you know, up through probably your teens. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the earlier you're asked that question, like the wilder your ambition. Right. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be president. I want to be a firefighter. Like there is no reason for you to believe that that thing can't happen. But the older you get, the more reason you have to believe that that thing can't happen. So, oh, I have to spend 10 years in school. Oh, I have to spend, you know, X amount of dollars in student loans or maybe not student loans, or maybe I can't afford it. Or, you know, I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. And so what I witnessed occur as I was the youngest manager on my team was that so many people, they're just, their dreams died. They didn't have aspirations anymore. Um, certainly not aspirations that they were working towards. Their life became work, working for somebody else. And even if they wanted to kind of toy with the idea of maybe a side hustle or having something, you know, hit big, like playing the lottery or something like that, it was like this far out, like, I'm just going to Hail Mary pass it. There was no structured plan to exit this hamster wheel of an existence and the spark in people's eyes were like dull. And I was just, I felt as I was getting older, like you said, you know, I won't say that I walk around saying I'm young and dumb, but I was young and, and, and certainly ambitious, right? Like, Oh, like I want this, I want this, I want that. And I noticed that as I got older too, I was starting to feel that spark dull. And I was just like, no, I can't, I can't allow this to be it. I can't allow that to be the thing. And the only way I felt that um, I would realize success in the event of, I guess, the dulling of that spark was upward momentum and mobility in the corporate space, right? To become, you know, a VP or SVP or EVP or the CEO, right? And there's so much, like you said, in terms of the corporate politics and just eating everything that, you know, is the intangible kind of exchange trade-off for what that looks like. And 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 that wasn't my idea of living. That wasn't my idea of thriving and, and certainly not my idea of what it is that I was put on this planet to do. Well, I'm so glad that you got your spark back. And I wanted to bring up something. So you said, you know, you worked at this job starting when you were 21 to 31 for a decade. 
And that reminded me of something that I've recently come to terms with that I just wanted to share with you is that from what I understand, your brain doesn't fully stop developing until you're age 25. So imagine those first four years in this corporate culture and how they're grooming you, how they're treating you, what you're learning before your brain is even fully developed and how that is going to affect you for the rest of your adult life. And I bring that up because I recently had a very profound healing experience actually without kind of derailing this interview too much with my personal story, but I think it's relevant. So when I was 22 to 25, I worked in this nonprofit I was an arts and culture director. I was obviously very young. It was my first job out of college. And this much older man who had a position of seniority, but not over me, but just kind of next to me, he did not like me. He thought I was young and dumb, which is probably why I kind of internalized that myself. And he would humiliate me in front of my boss. He would say negative things about me in front of my teachers. He would make me cry at work. Like every time I saw him, my stomach would just clench and it was an abusive situation and it was very toxic. And the reason he didn't get fired is because he was a large donor (laughs) for the nonprofit. And so it was very, you know, office politics, complex culture And eventually I left to grad school. And part of the reason I went to grad school was because I was like, I can't work with this guy anymore. This is so abusive. 12 years later, this past year, he apologized to me. And he was telling me that he was very angry because of an experience in his personal life. And he was taking it out on me and that, you know, I didn't do things the way that he wanted. And so he was taking it out on me. Suffice it to say, the apology was profound and healing because I thought that hell froze over when that happened. And even 12 years later, I was happy to receive the apology. But what I wanted to reiterate with this point was that with the whole, like, your brain stops developing at 25, you know, I was working at that place from 22 to 25. And I was like, how did my brain suffer before it was fully developed By working with this person who traumatized me and bullied me and humiliated me and, you know, hearing your story, it's like, in what ways did your brain change before it was even fully developed? And I think of all young people working in corporate culture, working in abusive, toxic situations where our brains aren't even fully developed yet. We are trying to find our own identity as professionals in the workplace And we're getting bullied before our brain even has a chance to find out who we are, you know? 100%. 100%. And I think um, the censoring is a trauma response too, right? You know, this idea that, you know, I was told that I was unprofessional for wearing earrings to work, (laughs) right? Like, um, or just not being able to speak up or talk back in instances where somebody, I love that you use the um, example of the large donor because, you know, banking was very similar. If, if an individual had an excess of $100,000, $200,000 in their combined assets, they were considered like, you know, a platinum preferred customer. And so 
they could come in and talk to you however they wanted and threaten to pull all their money out of the bank and then basically get not only your manager, but your manager's manager to do backflips and, you know, bend over for them to essentially have their way. And it was just like, well, what kind of example is that setting for me in my interactions outside of the banking space? And how do I create these archetypes in my mind around what power looks like and who deserves power and whether or not I deserve power. And like you said, it's profound. I think had my upbringing been different where I wasn't constantly fed like this self-esteem boost and, you know, reassurance and who it is that I am and the fact that I'm valuable and my opinion matters and my existence matters and, you know, power is is internal it's not external and it's not assigned to a dollar amount or a title or a position that my experience today would be very different um i may be still at work you know taking the abuse mentally emotionally spiritually even because i don't know any better and i think the breaking point for me was in realizing that i did know better and um not that that's power, but that's powerful <laughs> to say, hey, I'm going to take my power back and not allow for you to treat me this way or not allow for you to feel like I have to be grateful. And I was told that you know, in, in the weeks leading up to my um, decision to leave, I was told that I should be grateful that I have a job. And that's like yeah. the most, I mean, how, how much audacity do you have to have to say that to somebody? <laughs> that's that's one way people can keep you stuck and, and playing small. And, you know, the two points that you brought up that I wanted to share is like money has power and not necessarily in a good way, as we've seen, you know, with these large donors or people with large assets, because it's yielded as a way to hold things against you, to um, keep things the status quo, to keep people quiet. So when we say money has power, we mean it in a good way and a bad way. And we've all seen it in the bad way. And that's why I think people like me and you want to get other people who have good intentions, who you know want to change the status quo to have their own financial power, because we've seen the bad way so many times. And I love that you at least were able to have the kind of self-esteem and reassurance to know that you could do this on your own, that you could move away from this corporate culture because what happened with me recently with this guy that came back to apologize 12 years later, I had realized for so long that I had internalized this feeling that I wasn't good enough, that I couldn't be good at a job. And I think that's why I really was drawn to self-employment. And, you know, I've been self-employed for seven years. I don't plan on going back, hopefully. And I love it. And part of that is because I don't have to deal with abuse and office politics. And I can change clients at any time if it's not working and it's fine. But I had to really realize, you know, after this apology, it had nothing to do with me. And that was so profound for my healing because I had internalized it for so long that I'm not good enough. I was never good at my job. And then I realized, wow, he was just angry about some other things that had nothing to do with me. I was just a convenient scapegoat. 
And so I really think your, your point about self-esteem and reassurance is huge because I think I would have had a different trajectory in life too if I had rejected that earlier on. But for so long, I let that kind of rot on the inside and affect my self-esteem and my worth. And as we know, our worth also affects our relationship with money. For so long, I never negotiated because I thought I was just lucky to have a job, like you said. I had low pay. I accepted, you know, crumbs. And I think they're all interconnected. And and as time goes by and we are on our healing journey, so much of this can open up to us and we realize how it's all interconnected. 1,000%. And I want to give you kudos, too, because, you know, entrepreneurship I've learned full-time over the last eight months is not easy. And you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the longevity that you've created in um, reclaiming your power and um, exerting your power onto the world, right? And, and and being an entrepreneur is just, it's not something to be taken lightly. So, you know, congrats to you. And, um, you know, I don't plan on going back either. But, you know, we there's there's still some things that I have to figure out. And um, mm-hmm. you're you're certainly a role model when it comes to understanding, like I said earlier, I'm um, in this conversation, what exposure looks like, that that ceiling is possible. Right. I can definitely do it on my own. And so now I just have to fill in, you know, the other two E's, the education and the execution. Well, thank you so much. That was so kind of you. And. Yeah. I mean, the first eight months, I mean, I remember the first year of my business, the first two, three years of my business, you're really just figuring it all out. The systems, the clients, what you want to do. It's, it's a roller coaster. And even seven and a half years later, it's, it's still a roller coaster. Um, (laughs) What I, what I will say is it's never boring and you don't have to put up with BS like that and abuse like that if you don't want to, because hopefully having multiple clients, customers, sales, revenue streams, you can pick up and go if something's, you know, not working for you. And so actually, I wanted to talk about that as my next question. So you're an entrepreneur now, which I'm so excited about. Congratulations to you for taking that leap. I know how much guts that takes and how scary it is, especially in that first year, but I believe in you so much. And so I'm curious, how has working for yourself affected your money and mental health in good ways and bad ways? I know how it's affected me, good and bad, but I know everyone's experience is different. So I would love to hear from you. Yeah, I, um, I've been describing this entrepreneurship journey as a journey of self-discovery, right? Just Ooh, learning. That. Oh, yeah. Learning about me. Um, do I really mean what I say when I get up on, you know, these platforms and talk about supreme confidence? It's been, you know, facing myself in the mirror every day and figuring out what does it mean to be resilient? What does it mean to be um, persistent? How do I make something out of nothing? There are days that are not great. And there are days that are phenomenal, you know, big wins. And they usually always come after the days that are not great. Like the lowest days give me like the highest rewards and, and, you know, and and the bright days to follow. So um, how has it impacted my relationship with money? Well, it certainly has me spending more money than I'm making, which was expected going into it, but I think can be very scary because it's like, oh, like, man, what am I going to do? Right. I have a mortgage. I have a dog. I have to take care of myself. 
And so it's just like, well, how am I going to pay this bill? Um, am I going to be able to pay this bill on time? Do I have to resort to selling an asset uh, or selling a portion of assets? Um, it's changed my behavior as it relates to saving and investing because now like every penny counts. And so it's just kind of like this idea of holding on, holding on, holding on until the major breakthrough comes through. I recently participated in a Twitter space where this um, concept of imposter syndrome came up. And somebody said something that was just like hugely transformational for me. They said, I don't think that most people experience imposter syndrome. What they're experiencing is self-doubt as a result of what they're seeing and being told externally. They don't believe that they don't deserve or that they're not in the right place or that they can't do. They're just being influenced by what they're seeing on the outside that's turning into self-doubt. And that resonated with me because as I talk about, you know, this idea of supreme confidence in myself and my ability to make it right, my resolve in ultimately making the decision to leave what was this illusion of security, if you will, um, I was charged up. And it's it's the length of time being away from, you know, that regular paycheck. It's the days where it's like, okay, you know, this bill is due. How am I going to pay it? It's, you know, posting and posting and posting about products and services and not getting any kind of traction or any purchases like that all takes a toll on you mentally. And uh, if you're yes, not, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you, <laughs> if you are not strong and you're not like truly committed to this idea of abundance and rejecting scarcity, it, it can be a driller. So I am taking my own advice and the bitter medicine that is this experience with the understanding that this is an experience that I need to go through in order to really appreciate and really um, experience the other side of that. And, you know, my mom and I, we talk every so often and I vent about, you know, my frustrations and she goes, well, Rakim, listen, think about where you were a year ago and how you were every day at the end of your um, workday complaining about your manager and the stress and, you know, your coworkers and stuff like, is this the trade-off that you, you know, that you wanted? Like, do you, do you want to go back to that? And I'm like, "Mm, absolutely not. And so my privilege in this, and I have to remind myself of this regularly, my privilege in this is that I was afforded the ability to do what it is that I did because many people are not, and they're not positioned financially. Um, They're not positioned in terms of a skill set. They're not positioned in terms of confidence to say, you know what, my mental health and my self-worth is worth more than what it is that I have to eat in order to take this paycheck. And so um, I don't know if that answers your question necessarily in terms of how is it impacting my relationship with money. I still understand money to be a tool. I still believe in this idea of abundance. I still have aspirations and goals that have a monetary kind of value, but I'm also realizing that as much as it's about the money, it's also not. It's about the impact. It's about the experience. It's about the freedom. 
Yeah. And what I want to share with you is, you know, when those days of like, people aren't purchasing this, people aren't sharing this, people aren't commenting. What I always remind myself is that there are so many more lurkers out there that will never comment or never share or never say anything to you. Like you see it in the numbers of followers, of downloads, of whatever. And you're just like, oh, I am making an impact. Just we think of all of our consumer internet behavior. Many of us don't necessarily say things. And so just know that you're impacting people's life in some way. And then also look at the intangible benefits you're getting from entrepreneurship. Like I love sleeping in. I love taking midday naps and midday baths. Like I always try to take advantage of the perks that aren't necessarily financial, but are afforded with this lifestyle when I may or may not necessarily be seeing the money. And I think you're absolutely right that you have to focus on impact and your passion because that's what will keep you going during the hard times where you're like, how come no one cares about what I'm doing? (laughs) You know? So I want to congratulate you there. And I am really appreciate what you're doing. So where can people find you and you know how can they work with you? So I um, have heavily focused on personal branding. So everything is at my name, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, Pinterest, LinkedIn, my website. Um, it's at Rakim Sabri or RakimSabri.com. That's R-A-H-K-I-M-S-A-B-R-E-E. I also contribute um, off and on to a bunch of different publications. So a lot of my work is circulating out in the interwebs. If you type my name into Google and click on like news or articles, you'll see some of um, the articles that I've written. And I've really, like I said, focus on two things when I'm writing entrepreneurship and financial literacy and empowerment. So a lot of my content will be around, around those two things. Perfect. Well, definitely check him out and also get his book financially irresponsible give him a follow you could find out how to work with him thank you so much for being on the show this was such a lovely conversation absolutely thank you for having me thank you so much for listening to the mental health and wealth show want more content and support sign up for the mental hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet you can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.